What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So hello and welcome to you all. Welcome to 2021 and to season two of the podcast, episode number 36. I hope you all enjoyed a lovely Christmas and you didn't overindulge too much. I um, spent a few days relaxing, training and um, was um, just generally having a bit of a fairly relaxed time. And then something happened that I thought I would talk about today and um, I'll go into that in in a few moments i um hope you enjoyed last week's uh, episode with my friend jp de villiers and um that you've been setting your goals for 2021 and you all plan to achieve great things in the coming year no matter the struggle or the challenges you just have to kind of face up to it and um, that was one of the reasons why i asked JP to come on the podcast because uh, in 2019, JP suffered a terrible um, incident when he was knocked off his bike by, well, he was run over basically by a drunk driver uh, who hit and run and left the scene and left JP on the side of the road to die. And um, JP was found by a policeman off duty and managed to get him to safety and um uh, but he woke up two weeks later after being unconscious for two weeks every bone in his body broken and his business basically um, stopped and he was going out of business basically because he was the breadwinner and obviously he's now in hospital you know in serious um in serious pain so a very interesting story from jp and i hope you guys uh, if you haven't listened to it already please go back and have a listen to that because it's very very um instructive and i think just shows you that no matter what you're going through somebody else somewhere else is going through something far worse and a lot of the time the mindset is that you kind of feel like you're down on your luck and that that everything's going against you but really you know the only person who's going to sort this out is yourself there's nobody going to come along and rescue you there's no magic pill that fixes everything it's just consistent hard work and grind that gets you where you want to go so this week, guys, look, it's it's been a crazy, crazy week. Um, I I was kind of looking forward to a couple of really relaxing days over Christmas and to come back to it all refreshed. And we, I thought what I would do is I'd explain to you what has happened in the past week and just fill in the blanks. We we spoke before about buying foreign property, and a lot of the time it can seem seem like a very exotic thing to do and glamorous thing to do and kind of exciting thing to do and a lot of people go off and they you know they choose a place a beautiful place that they've been on holiday and they say i want to have a holiday home there or i want to buy an investment property there whatever it is a lot of people do this based on kind of an emotional attachment that they have to a particular location as opposed to it being maybe a business related decision that they went and they researched and all of that stuff and of course i've fallen for this exact same thing myself back in 2005 i bought a beautiful apartment down in the south of spain and this was going to be you know a holiday vacation destination for me i had been down there and i kind of convinced myself that this was going to be a great investment 
But really, if I kind of am even completely honest with myself, it was more of a holiday destination and it was less of an investment because I didn't really research the market. I didn't really look at where prices were relative to where they had been. All of the stuff that you would normally do because I was being driven by emotion and probably a little bit of ego as well because it was a pretty suave, you know, a pretty cool looking place at its own garden and swimming pool and I mean the, my apartment actually had its own swimming pool and its own garden and it looked out right over the waterfront um, down in the south in a place called Soto Grande and the area that we were looking out on was where all of the big kind of super yachts were parked up and stuff so it was a very kind of glamorous area and I fell in love with it immediately and of course once that happens then the decision making gets kind of flawed a little bit and uh, don't get me wrong now, I got years and years of really, really, you know, great times down there. And I really, I don't regret buying it. But just in terms of whether or not it was a good investment, that is a completely different topic to discuss. You know, if you're buying it for enjoyment, then make it clear that that's what it's for. Don't convince yourself that this is an investment if really the alternative is that it's really just a property that you want to own for whatever reasons you know just own up to those reasons and don't live in this kind of false security that this is a great investment and that's the only reason i'm doing it anyway one of the things one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about it is that uh, you know foreign property as i've mentioned you know seems glamorous and all that but there's a huge amount of stumbling blocks to owning and managing and and even selling buying and selling a property in a foreign country and Spain is very familiar to a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast I know if you're Irish then Spain is a you know a very very regular holiday destination if you're English the same thing a lot of friends that I made down in the south of Spain were English and um Obviously, if anyone's listening further afield, you know, you, you probably have other destinations that are closer, but that you would consider to be holiday destinations where, you know, buying a, a holiday apartment or a house or whatever are, um, are more common to be done there. So I rented the place after a couple of years of living down there and really enjoying it. Um, uh, this is before this is while I was living in Ireland and I was traveling down and I would go down and I'd spend you know Christmas there and I'd spend spend Easter there and then as I got you know more and more into the lifestyle I started to spend longer and longer over the summer holidays so my kids were very very young and I'd go down for a month and then I sort of would extend that and say oh you know why don't I go down for six weeks and then I think I actually might have spent 10 weeks down there at one stage which was fantastic and it was just around the time that the internet was starting to become more and more um, available and you could have your Wi-Fi and you could actually do an awful lot of work over the internet. So that was something that was very attractive to me and I was down there for weeks at a time with my kids, but I was able to answer emails and do a lot of work. And so that's what when I kind of came around to the idea of maybe I'd actually like to live in Spain and, um, and I ended up buying a villa and uh, move the whole family down and sure anyone who's familiar with this podcast will be familiar with my story about all that stuff but what do you do with an apartment when you've bought a villa and you no longer need it so i decided that i would rent this place out as a rental property and so i did that for a couple of years and it was fine i mean i'd i'd have a guy would move in somebody um uh, there was one particular guy who was a doctor based in gibraltar and he 
actually was doing very well for himself so we had a home in Gibraltar but he wanted to have like a holiday place for the weekends so we actually rented my apartment so that he could have a weekend place to go and visit that was not Gibraltar and uh, Gibraltar is only about a 20 minute drive away so it was um, it was quite nice for that chap and he didn't use it too much so the apartment didn't get it kind of bashed up and smashed up um, I also considered doing Airbnb. Now, Airbnb would have obviously generated more income, but there is an, there's a lot of restrictions in Spain around Airbnb, and you have to get the local town hall to approve it and all of these kind of extra bits of work that has to be done. And in the end, it was just it was a lot of hassle to try to do this remotely. And so I decided just to continue renting it to the guy who uh, was living nearby in Gibraltar. And, you know, he paid me an awful lot less, but the place got an awful lot less wear and tear. And so furniture and things like that didn't get too badly damaged. Anyway, it was in the past 12 months or so that I decided to sell the property. And when you want to sell a property in Spain, especially if it's kind of a, a... residential vacation holiday home whatever you want to call it that can be quite a different process to what you might be used to doing back home so in ireland if you were selling a property you could probably expect to sell it within a couple of weeks once it's been listed in england the very same and um, you know maybe 12 15 weeks 16 weeks something like that at the the longest before from the decision to sell to the time when you actually have the money sitting in your bank account unless you've got a very unattractive property but this was a beautiful beautiful property so shouldn't you know if anything it was going to fly away quicker than most other places but down there it can take months and months to sell a property and so that's one of the things to look into before you go and buy a place is just to understand the process for selling it how quickly can you turn around and sell it and be careful who you ask because obviously the agent who's selling you the property is going to tell you whatever you want to hear Um, you need to be careful to make sure that you kind of check that with solicitors and things like that and just make sure that you get the right answer Um, typically it takes six to nine months to sell a property down in the south and um, if not longer i've seen properties that have sit sit on the books for years and they're just permanently for sale and nobody comes along and offers to buy them so it's it's obviously a consequence of the price that people are setting but if you want to sell it you can just you know drop your price right back down and you will find a, a bottom feeder who's interested but it's a process and it takes time so I gave my property to a an agent, an agent that I knew down there, and he put it on his books, but I got zero inquiries over, uh, I'd say, about a nine-month period, like absolutely zero. And so I decided that this guy wasn't doing enough work, and I gave it to another agent. And this agent was somebody else I, I knew, and I knew that they would work a little harder on it. So they um, they got to work on it, but... They asked me if I would consider dropping the price of it. So I had to go and drop the price. And um, in the end, I got an offer back in, I think it was back in early November. And it was below the price that I wanted. But, uh, you know, with a bit of to and fro and negotiation and stuff like that, we eked it up and I got them to increase it by, I think in the end, I think we got about thirty-five to 40,000 increase in the in the offer price. And it wasn't quite where I wanted to be, but I decided, you know what, I'm just going to take it because I know that there's nothing further that I can get out of this person. So once that was done, they went off and they got approval for a mortgage and we were, everything was set to go. 
and I decided, great, we finally have a buyer. They have approval for mortgage. Everything is ready to go. That is when I get a phone call from the previous agent who said that he had a client with very strong interest in the apartment. And I said to him, well, I'm sorry, but I've just agreed to sell it. And he said, well, have you actually signed a contract yet? And I was saying, well, I haven't actually signed a contract yet, but I have agreed and this person has got mortgage approval. And so, you know, this is where there's a slippery slope. And he suggested that he'd get back to me, but that his client would definitely be interested and would probably offer more. So I told him that it wasn't in contract, but, you know, I'd, I'd you know, probably not be interested in, in, in breaking the contract given where we were at. He called me an hour later and said that his client was prepared to better the offer by 25 grand on scene. And uh, so he, he wasn't even prepared to see the apartment. He just wanted to offer this increase. Now, that is where a lot of people will actually sort of say, oh, wow, you know, let's let's take the 25 grand extra and let's immediately accept it and throw the other person out. Um, now, the problem is okay, we're in the middle of November and obviously Brexit now in retrospect, you know, we're into we're in January now. So we know that the deal has been done on, on Christmas Eve. But back in November, nobody had any idea what was going to happen on the 31st of December. And for all we knew, Brexit was going to come crashing down and there was going to be all sorts of chaos and stuff. And I just thought to myself, there was a huge amount of uncertainty out there. And in the event that there is a no deal kind of collapse of the economy or whatever could have happened, that any deal that was kind of out there might actually fall over or the prices might drop further and everything could just get frozen up. I've seen it happen before. And so I wasn't prepared to take that risk. And so I decided that I'm not going along with the um, going along with the increased offer. And I'm going to tell you exactly why. There's a couple of different reasons. Number one, emotion. OK, remember never to allow your emotions guide your decisions. And that works both ways in terms of your own emotions and the emotions of the purchaser. And in this particular case, this new purchaser who'd come along was making this big offer, but he didn't even see the apartment. And how, how am I to know that this is not just some emotional reaction to being told that the apartment is being sold and that they go and they make this big increased offer to get me to go and agree to, to do that, to, to, you know, to postpone the other deal that's happening. And it all sounds very enticing when there's a big number attached to it. But the reality is, is that this offer, um, it doesn't have uh, any negotiation in the price yet. He hasn't even viewed the property. They don't have mortgage approval and they're not ready to go. And there's all sorts of room there for the deal to move sideways. And apart from that, there's contracts that have to be done and all that kind of stuff that you're going to have to start again. Whereas the original offer that I had, I had met with the, the, the person who viewed the property twice they had um, got mortgage approval, which is obviously a major step in the right direction. They had the deposit ready to go and they were ready to sign a commitment straight away. And so I kind of thought to myself, this is a situation where basically a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. And you can easily get into this situation where your own emotions, you kind of think, oh, there's 25 grand. What could have happened is these people 
They make the 25 grand offer. I tell the other purchaser to go away. They get incensed because they've made an agreement. As far as they're concerned, now they're getting gazumped. Um, they walk away. They decide that they're not going to deal with me ever again. They've already spent money on mortgage approval and whatever solicitors and all this kind of stuff. So they're, they've got the hump in a big way. And they and then this guy might turn around and say, oh, you know what? We've changed our mind. We actually didn't realize the apartment looked like that or was configured like that. Or we, we think we've actually over um, we've offered you too much. We'd like to come back on the price. And I end up get, you know, having to kind of negotiate with someone because the other people have pulled out. So I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to take this apart from the fact that Brexit is coming down on top of it and this is November and I know from previous experience that any kind of a deal that comes close to December is very, very, you know, it's at risk of not getting completed before the end of the year. And so I thought to myself, um, I'm just going to go with the person who's there, the person who came along first, the person who offered me a price that I, you know, we negotiated and we were satisfied and we agreed and therefore let's go with this. So I said, look, let's go ahead, let's sign the agreement. So down there in Spain, there is a thing called a deposit contract. And so when you sign this deposit contract, it's basically, it's it's going to, it's designed to ensure that both the buyer and the seller remain committed to the deal. If I change my mind, I want to pull out after signing this document, I not only have to pay back the deposit, but I actually have to pay double the deposit back to the purchaser who is getting kind of turfed out of the deal. Now it works both ways. If the purchaser decides to change their mind after they've signed the deposit agreement, then I get to keep the deposit. They don't get any money back. And so it, it's kind of, you know, they get to keep their deposit or I get to keep the deposit. And, um, but either way, both parties suffer the same penalty if they decide to pull out of the deal. So this ensures gazumping doesn't happen after you've signed the contract. And so I was happy enough to sign that I, I had made up my mind. I was going ahead with it. So transaction paperwork now has to get processed. And um, because I, I actually bought this apartment using a company and I bought, you know, at the time when I bought this property, there was a thing called wealth tax in Spain. And if you bought it in your personal name, then they could apply all sorts of taxes to it. And so I instead bought it through a company. So there was no wealth tax involved. And I bought that company was actually owned by my own company in Ireland. And so there was a bit of paperwork involved with all of that. There's also the contract paperwork as well that you have to do up. Now, the big concern for me when I saw the documents coming out was that the deal was actually set to close on the 18th of December, one week before Christmas. And that is pretty risky leaving it that late because, you know, anything can go wrong at that stage. You know, paperwork gets delayed a day and you can actually end up just missing the entire transaction. And given the restrictions with COVID and all that, I was very concerned at the idea of flying to Spain because I've done all the travel I've done over the years. I found that anytime there's disruption, it's usually close to big holidays like Christmas and things like that. And I have been stuck in airports for, you know, a day or two because of things like this. So I just said to myself, you know what? I am not going to fly to Spain and sign these contracts myself. I'm going to give a power attorney to my lawyer and they're going to sign on my behalf. And that just means that I can avoid all of the grief of traveling down and doing all this kind of stuff. So, um, so long story short, 
I asked my lawyers, go and prepare the documents, prepare an, a power of attorney as well, and I will give you the uh, authority to go and sign all the documents on my behalf. So he said, fine, we'll go and do that. He would prefer if I came down, but he said, look, fair enough, given COVID and all that kind of stuff, let's just do it like this. So all the documents got drafted up. Now, this is getting closer and closer to Christmas, obviously. they Before I can sign uh, a power of attorney, I the documents have to be completed and everything and I have to book uh, a meeting with a public notary here in Ireland. Now the the public notary basically witnesses my signature but it's not as simple as that. They actually need to validate that I am uh, actually authorised to sign on behalf of the company. So in order to kind of satisfy this, this public notary I had to produce documents that showed that I was the owner of the company in Ireland and that I had the authority to sign on behalf of the company in Spain and all of this stuff has to be done so that's an extra bit of paperwork and legwork that has to be done in order to get all that. Now I happen to know this notary because I've been working with him for years but I didn't actually get to meet with him and sit down and sign all the documents until the 15th of December. So we're now just 10 days before Christmas and three days before the, the so-called completion date. So already I knew where this thing is going to get delayed because at the very minimum, um, you're going to have to go and sign the documents. Then I'm going to have to run to the Department of Foreign Affairs to get it uh, this thing called an apostille attached to it. And then I have to courier the documents. So this was all going to take an extra couple of days. So I told the, the lawyer, um, to please notify the purchaser that it was probably going to be after Christmas before all of this was possible, and um, and so that was you know they were they were they were glad that I had actually given them advance notice of this. I just said that because of COVID restrictions and all this, this is probably going to take a little bit longer, and they. Um, so basically, when you go and sign a power of attorney in front of a public notary, he does all of the he, he binds the document, he stamps it and he officiates it. And, and then you have to take that document and you go to the Department of Foreign Affairs, which is basically the passport office, and you go into the consular services part. And in there, there's a thing called the Apostille of the Hague Convention. And that is this stamp that uh, basically it it validates that the public notary who signed it is actually an authorised public notary. And so there's a whole lot of rigmarole to kind of get this done. And usually I would just drive in, park the car outside the passport office, run in and drop off the uh, the document. And then worst case, like sometimes you can actually just wait for them and they'll do it there and then it costs 40 euro. But uh, worst case scenario, you, usually you drop it in the morning and you collect it by lunchtime. And then what I would do is I would go directly from the passport office to the local DHL office and I would courier it to Spain. And that would take maybe 24 to 36 hours, something like that. And then the document is down there. Now, what I did not uh, factor in was COVID restrictions in the Department of Foreign Affairs. And this is where through a real spanner in the works and what happened was uh, my notary, just after signing all the documents and sealing them up and everything, he goes, you know now you're, that the department is closed and what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to send this in by registered post with your phone number and all this kind of detail, contact details for you. And they will call you when they open your registered letter. And that's when they'll take your credit card details and they'll confirm your address and they'll post it back to you with the stamp on it. Now, 
I suddenly realized, oh, geez, we're in trouble here now because it's a few days before Christmas and the registered post, by the time it gets in there, who's to say it's probably caught up in the in this sort of Christmas postal rush and everything. So anyway, I went straight from the notary office to the post office on the 15th of December and stuck it into an envelope, sent it straight by registered post to the consular um, services in the Department of Foreign Affairs and praying that they would call me within uh, the next two days. No phone call was um, forthcoming. And so I'm sitting there and I decide, oh, this is such a pain. I better let them know that this this document is not back yet. So that is when my lawyer says, don't worry, the purchaser's mortgage is valid until the 31st of the 12th. And I suddenly realized, God, you know, I wonder if actually this document is going to get back, you know, the week after Christmas. There's a strong chance it won't. So I just said, look, it's probably best to let these people know that it's, you know, there's a risk that this will drag into January. Uh, so Christmas came and went. And on the 27th, I just decided, you know, I'll open my email, see what's going on. And I get an email from the agent and he just said, Gavin, is there any update, please, on this, um, on the power of attorney? Because the purchaser is really eager to sign before the 31st because they don't want their mortgage approval to run out. And he said, you know, can you give a call into the Department of Foreign Affairs and like ask them to speed up? Like these guys really didn't have a clue. I mean, there's just no chance that you can do that. Um, I have no I have no contacts in there to call even to ask, like, can you go and look for my piece of my document and, and like move it to the top of the queue? So that is when they tell me that the purchaser is now going to be entitled to get double the deposit back if we go beyond the 31st of the 12th. This deposit agreement that I signed was basically an agreement that I did not realize could actually come around and bite me in the ass because of the fact that the uh, the COVID restrictions were there and that I wasn't going to be able to get this power attorney back. And they were saying, I said, come on, like surely it's reasonable given the COVID you know, restrictions, given all of this grief that's going on at the moment, surely any sort of person would consider it to be completely reasonable to just say this, this will take place in, in, you know, mid January or something like that. Like, what's the big deal? And they just said, look, Gavin, this person has signed a contract. They have the right, if you aren't here before the closing, they have the right to pull out and you will have to pay them double the deposit back to them. And so that was quite a lot of money. And I was there looking at myself, uh, thinking, oh my God, how have I got myself into this trouble? So sure enough, on the 27th of December, I start looking at flights to Spain uh, within the next two days. And um, there was just so much to think about because first of all, I got to go and get a flight to Spain. Then I also have to get a flight back so I'm back, you know, to be with family and stuff like that for the new year. I also need to think about COVID restrictions and all that kind of stuff. So I just, I really, it was a mad panic at the last minute. And like, where do you get COVID test results? So anyway, I went and checked the internet, found Aer Lingus were flying the next day at three o'clock. And so that was fine. But it did say on the website that you need to have a negative COVID test before you can actually board the flight. And I was thinking, geez, this is like, 24 hours away this flight like where am I going to get a COVID test with the results 
going to be definitely with me before the next morning. And so sure enough, there's actually a there's a there's a kind of rapid testing for travel at the airport. There's a com- the company's called Randox and for 99 euro, they'll turn your COVID test around in about 12 hours and you'll get the results by breakfast time the next morning. So sure enough, flew in. Uh, well, I say flew, drove in like the like the clappers, got into the airport, went down, did the COVID test, which, by the way, took all of about 30 seconds. I mean, I went in, sat down, the guy sticks this thing in your neck, in your nose, and that's it. Bang, you're done. And went back into the car, went home, started thinking, OK, what do I need? Need to go and book a car because when you land in Malaga, there's about an hour's drive to get to um, to where I actually have the apartment. And so I had to go and book a car and then I had to look for flights for return flights. Now, it turns out because of the time of the year, there's no flight return flight the next day. And so what I actually had to do was I had to go and look for other flights. Now, Ryanair was thankfully flying the next day. So I managed to book a, a Ryanair flight, flew to Spain. I uh, had to go and do all this kind of online forms. Um, they actually, they basically scan that you're, that you get an email that, that confirms your negative test. And this email has a special QR code on it. And they actually scan you in the airport just after passport control. And so arrived in the airport. Um, the airport, by the way, was completely empty. It was like a ghost town. I've never, ever seen it so quiet. So it was actually a pleasure straight through the airport, straight onto the plane, flew down to Spain, arrived in Spain, go through passport control. And sure enough, there is a person who scans the email and went down, hired the car, drove down for an hour down to the south where I have my apartment, stayed in the apartment for the night. And then the next morning, straight to the notary office, signed the documents. I had to bring my own passport and I had to bring various documents that confirmed who I was because all of the stuff that I had done in Dublin was all null and void. Nothing I had done. I had to pay the, the notary in Dublin um, for a document that I basically didn't need because I was doing all of this again in front of the notary down in Spain. So um, anyway, long story short, went straight from the public notary's office to the bank, signed an agreement that my mortgage was being terminated and straight back to the airport like not a moment too soon i didn't get to eat or anything like that and now i am back in dublin and i have to isolate for 14 days so the the moral of the story is though is that the deal was done and this is the thing is just when you get into this business you have to realize that sometimes the you know it's going to make you have to do things sometimes that you may not want to do. In my case, I had plans to have a very chilled out, relaxing holiday with the family. I was going to sit back and just eat and <laughs> and relax and watch some movies. And instead, I'm like a mad man dashing through uh, the south of Spain, taking flights left, right and center. And now I'm 14 days having to isolate. But managed to get it done didn't get any penalties didn't have to pay this person double their deposit back and the deal got done and um, that is the end of that story so i don't know guys has that been helpful for you i just thought it would be useful to kind of explain some of the sort of not standard stuff that you don't realize that has to happen when you're either buying or selling a property and that might sound like a one-off but actually Back years ago when I was doing a project, um, a similar deal down in Spain, I remember having to fly to, From I, I flew to Spain, 
And then from Spain, I got down and I was told that I had to sign something in in Amsterdam um, because the company was based in Amsterdam at the time. And so I had to fly from Spain to, um, I think I had to spend, spend, fly from Spain to England um, in order to catch a flight from England to Amsterdam. Went to the notary's office in Amsterdam, signed the document, then had to get a train to Munich. And then I was able to get from Munich back on a plane back to Spain. And this all happened in the space of 24 hours. And so I ended up like sleeping maybe three hours on the on the floor of the airport in order to make that flight. And that is because basically if you don't do this, sometimes you can actually trigger these penalty things. And, um, and so just be aware before you sign anything, what are all the drawbacks? A lot of these guys don't tell you what's involved. I mean, when I signed that deposit contract, I was kind of familiar with Spanish law at that stage, but they didn't tell me, Gavin, now you do realize if you don't go ahead with the deal or if you're delayed or if COVID restrictions cause you to be delayed, that the person might want double the deposit back. Nobody's warning you all of this. It's only the warning after you're already committed. And so anyway, guys, I hope that was useful. Um, it's a short enough one today because I had hoped to go and do a nice big episode on recapping 2020, but I have a load of stuff planned for the podcast for season two. I'm going to go real deep on a lot of these topics and the topics that a lot of you guys ask questions about this year. And so thanks very much. That is it for episode number 36 of Behind the Facade. Thanks so much for listening. As always, please if you can, give me a five-star rating uh, over on iTunes, or if you've got the time, it'd be really great if you can go and leave a review, and it just helps get us get noticed by the algorithm and move us up the rankings. If you've found anything useful in this uh, today, maybe share the episode out to a friend. If you have any questions you'd like to ask, or stuff for me to cover for future episodes, please connect with me. Uh, you can go to the Facebook group, Behind the Facade Community, or alternatively, you can connect with me on social media. My handle, as always, Gavin J. Gallagher. And lastly, if you want to stay up to event, up to date on various events and things like that, you can sign up for my email list over at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, guys, look, that's it for this week. I'm looking forward to catching up with you very soon. And until next time, speak soon.